2: Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine, but you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100 One of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, Lot 546 or Lot 622, simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. you got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy, and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M, or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom
2: Hartman here with you. Here in Portland, it's bizarre walking into the studio today, walking into work. The sun looked like a harvest moon. I mean, it was just this big red ball hanging a couple inches above the horizon or a couple degrees above the horizon. And it's because of all the forest fires. You know, California's getting all this publicity about their forest fires, but Oregon is on fire too, as is Washington State, as is British Columbia, as is much of Canada, as is much of the American West. And now nature just came out with a report on this, how this is happening all over the world. So anyhow, should Democrats be talking about impeachment? I think, frankly, a very, very important question. We have in our party, in the Democratic Party, you know, a fair amount of denial going on, right? Oh, it's not so bad or, oh, you know, it is terrible, but you can't just talk about that. If you run on impeachment, that's just going to get the Republicans out there voting against you is one theory. I've never been a big fan of the voting against theory although Trump is causing me to slightly recalibrate my thinking on it but broadly speaking I think people tend to go to the polls because they want to vote for something rather than against it. You could say well people didn't vote for Mike Dukakis because you know he wouldn't say that he wanted to execute the guy who in the theoretical question, you know, the hypothetical question Would you want to execute a man who raped and murdered your wife Kitty? And he was like, well, I don't know. I'd have to think about that, uh, words to that effect sort of thing. And some people say it cost him in the election. Well, I would say it wasn't that they, and just to talk about that one issue, right? Because there was a whole bunch of things. but And the big one, of course, was the Willie Horton ad. Be scared of black people because Michael Dukakis wants to let them out and let them go, come kill you, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that was really the undercurrent in that election in 1988. But I don't think that a lot of people turned out and voted against Dukakis I think that to the extent that the death penalty was an issue for them they were voting for Bush because he was in favor of it and Dukakis you know whether he'd been opposed to it or whether he had simply been you know really quiet about it I don't think it would have mattered a whole great deal so this is a debate this is a really serious debate that's going on inside the Democratic Party right now you've got Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have weighed in on it or are weighing in on it Broadly speaking, the Democratic position, the the party position is, you know, we don't have control of the House, we don't have control of the Senate, we don't have, you know, the two-thirds of the Senate necessary to convict, so you'd have a Bill Clinton-Andrew Johnson situation where you might impeach him in the House, but nothing happens in the Senate, so why even bother? And we don't control the House, so you know, right now, I mean, Paul Ryan wouldn't even allow a vote on it, although there's a very good chance Democrats will control the House after this election in November so in january after january 20th when everybody is sworn in should we start talking about impeachment and you know what i've been saying up to this point is let's wait for the mueller inquiry to come out and i think it's going to get real interesting with paul manafort's second trial because everything that i'm reading about this and again we haven't seen the public document dump and all that kind of stuff and that won't happen until the trial actually starts but Everything that we have heard so far suggests that Manafort's second trial is going to be about his work with Russian oligarchs and uh, in Ukraine and and Ukrainian oligarchs and their links to the Trump campaign. So, uh, you know, if they get this conviction here, this second trial is going to be fascinating. So there is an argument to be made that we should simply wait until the Mueller investigation comes in and we can all look at what happened. But I think that there's more than enough evidence right now. Actually, there have been several cases of this. When Al Gore's campaign was given a copy of the debate notes for George W. Bush, they called the FBI. They said, we're not even going to open the book. We're not even going to look at it. Now, truth be told, they thought maybe they were being punked, and it was phony debate notes, or it was debate notes that would cause them to change their strategy in a way that would hurt them or maybe it was the real thing and it was just exactly what they needed to win the election but they weren't willing to cheat and that was by the way from a source in Texas it wasn't from a source in Russia and this isn't the first time it happened by the way we know that George Herbert Walker Bush enthusiastically took Jimmy Carter's debate notes but there was another Democrat I think it might have been Bill Clinton who got a set of debate notes and also called the FBI this has happened twice So maybe it's just Democrats who have, you know, basically high moral standards. But taking debate notes from a foreign government, and I think you'd be hard-pressed not to know that that was what was going on, given the email chain. I, I realize Giuliani's out there lying about this, but given that, it's pretty important to say, no, we don't want this stuff. So should the Democrats be talking about impeachment? And if so, how? Maybe that's the most important question, because I think that the topic is a big topic. I think that it, it really cracks open the larger issue of corruption and the larger issue of collusion, the larger issue of conspiracy to defraud the United States and, frankly, to defraud all of us. We had an election you know, stolen from us. Now, there's a whole bunch of different things that happened. You had a weak candidate. You had uh, Jim Comey coming out two weeks before the election and talking about Hillary's emails. I mean, all this stuff, any one of these things could have provided the margin of victory or not. You had voter suppression, but you also had a foreign government interfering.
3: This
1: is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: We're asking the question, should the Democratic Party be talking about impeachment? richard in chicago Hey, richard thanks for listening to chicago's progressive talk your thoughts
1: yeah yeah the reason i called was about um, it's so interesting that the republicans can go lock them up do all this sort of stuff and we're debating it's a good debate whether or not we should go after impeachment or talk about impeachment and i think it's a teachable moment it's legal we ought to couch it in the terms of if real crimes were perpetrated would the republicans impeach him i mean it's a great thing for mobilizing our base and uh if bill clinton
2: if there was even a whisper in 1992 that bill clinton had conspired with russia to get himself elected and that they had actually actively helped him get elected he would have been impeached in a nanosecond
1: yeah well that's the whole thing is see they, they're bloodthirsty and we're having a debate like we're the remember the cartoon with the chipmunks you know oh, yeah. excuse me no excuse me it's a legitimate thing and we shouldn't go overboard on it but we should use it to ex- explain that these republicans won't even investigate it they won't fund cyber, monies for cyber protections, it's a gift. So I hopefully will do it, but do it in a way that isn't
4: easily dismissed.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the key to it, Richard. And I think you've nailed it there. And that is that when we talk about impeachment, we always need in the same sentence to mention an actual crime, the conspiracy to collude with a foreign country. That's a crime in and of itself. I mean, you know, whether any collusion actually happened, conspiring to commit a crime is a crime. And it looks to me like the actual conspiracy was executed; that they did pollute, and then they engaged in, in a cover-up.
1: I was just going to say that we you know we have to show some toughness. You know, no one's going to follow Democrats if they continue to be meek. Yeah, they're not. This other side is rabid.
2: I agree. We need to take names and kick ass. I'm I'm totally with you. Thank you, thank you, Richard. Good to hear from you, Anita, in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Anita.
3: Hey, Tom. Good morning. Yeah, I don't think we have to talk about impeachment. I don't think we have to run on impeachment. We just need to run on holding him accountable. This is the most corrupt administration probably in American history. The Republicans are not holding him accountable. We have to run on holding him accountable. I think the American people would want that. But isn't
2: the ultimate statement of accountability an impeachment?
3: Well, eventually. But people just say accountable instead of impeachment. I think the word impeachment, accountable suggests that we're going to listen to the evidence. We're going to hold him accountable for not just Russia, but for the emoluments clause, for all the corrupt things that his administration is doing. I believe even his supporters kind of want him to have some checks on him. Because really, they voted for him because he's a racist, and he uses a bullhorn instead of a dog whistle.
2: I think Sorry. a good chunk of his base voted for him for that reason. But I think that the people, and it's a sizable cohort of the population, by the way, who voted twice for Obama and then voted for Trump voted well, for I Obama they because was. they wanted hope and change and they voted for Trump because they wanted hope and change. He promised that he wasn't going to mess oh. with Social Security and Medicare. He was going to bring our jobs back home and change our trade policies. Pretty straightforward. I don't believe
3: that. I don't believe that I, because I believe, and I, there was a study, and I can't remember if it was Yahoo or something, did a study. that showed the people that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump were almost like contrarians. where well, they were voting for whoever they felt would upset the system.
2: That's my point. By upset the system, I'm talking about he was going to change. He he, he campaigned on blowing up neoliberalism. He said he was going to raise taxes on rich people. He was going to change our trade policies. He was going to have a program that was better and cheaper than Obamacare that covered all Americans. I mean, these are the things he campaigned on. But it
3: was so ridiculous that these people were paying
2: any... But low-information voters, Anita, bought it.
3: No, I don't believe they cared about the social... Uh, I know social people defense. who did. I
2: I sat and well, talked with I'm these sure, people.
3: I'm sure there's a small percentage of people that might have. But I'm telling you here, I have met many Trump supporters. I've not met one that wasn't didn't vote for him because of some sort of racial huh. overtones in his... I wonder if that's know, the difference the between
2: Texas and Washington, D.C., because all the people I was meeting were at the marina in Washington, D.C., and... I think
3: if you've got a little, dug a little deeper with them, even, you might say, well, how do you feel about affirmative action? Do you feel that white people are discriminated against? And I guarantee you, you'll find some.
2: yeah, although a lot of them were in the military where that's less of an issue. But okay, I get what you're saying, Nina, and I don't want to debate you on it. I think that probably we're both right at some level. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I appreciate the call. So people are calling in, weighing in on thoughts on whether or not we should be impeaching Trump or talking whether Democrats should even run on impeachment or whether we should just, you know, keep our mouths shut and wait for Mueller's report or what. What do we do? Brian in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Brian, your thoughts. Hello, Tom.
5: Um, So in my mind... Um, As a matter of principle, Donald Trump definitely should be impeached, but the problem is, as a matter of politics, I'm not sure that's going to work out very well, because you get rid of Trump, and you end up with
2: pants. But what could Pence possibly do that's worse than what Trump has done? I mean, Trump has, has, has tried to overthrow the tax exemption or, you know, uh, the, the, the limit on tax exemption for churches. Trump has, has threatened to go to war with Turkey, essentially, over a right-wing religious pastor. Trump has, I mean, Trump's got the evangelicals solidly behind him. He's been throwing them bones left and right. He's, he's you know, trashed trans people in the military. I mean, you know, what, what possibly could Tr- Pence do that's more than Trump has done?
5: Well, but the thing is, if you get Pence, then you have a candidate that is much more serious in 2020, because I, I'm not i not afraid of Mike Pence.
2: I, I've debated Mike Pence. Mike Pence is a weasel. I, I think Mike Pence will melt under the under the uh, public scrutiny if the if the media, you know, takes him at all seriously.
5: But Tom, in 2020, just follow my my chain of reasoning here. Right. So. In 2020, if Trump is still in office and he's been checked by the Democratic House of Representatives at the least and perhaps a majority in the Senate, so he's been rendered somewhat toothless, still in charge of their executive and performing all kinds of mischief. But if he is removed from office, you've got Pence there that already republicans and independents i just think they'll be much more likely to vote for him than they would be trump in 2020
2: yeah you may be right you may well be right brian and that kind of discounts that we would have a strong candidate on the democratic side which i'm confident we're going to have a strong candidate or a strong campaign a candidate for both president and vice president in 2020. But your point is that it's unlikely that Trump will get removed from office anyway. You don't have two-thirds of the Senate, and even if you did, you probably wouldn't have a United Democratic Party around this issue for the reasons that you're talking about, that Pence would be a stronger candidate in 2020 than Trump. On the other hand, don't underestimate Trump's ability to to either A, turn out his base, or B, possibly start a second American Civil War.
5: Yeah, I agree, Tom. I mean, there's a danger Uh, here, isn't there?
2: it's just food for thought. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call, Brian. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. Muse, it's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer, and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm gonna write for an hour, and half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that, and oh I need to check my email, oh I gotta do this. And and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, Oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm gonna get back to writing. And now instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, Muse ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. sheila in uh, talent oregon you wanted to i think echo brian's perspective
0: no okay Um, my feeling well part of it one uh the question is um should the democrats talk up impeachment should that be their focus right and i don't believe it should be the focus i think that Mueller is going to get the goods on them and if he does it's not going to matter one bit if we don't take back congress if the democrats don't take congress in this next next election which right. I wish people would stop calling the midterms these are congressional elections yep. and state legislate they are as important I'm getting angry from the pre from two of your other callers um, but they are equally as important in this democracy as the presidency mm. we don't just have a king we don't have a one ruler we don't we do have one who thinks he would, would be king but um, so I would like their focus to be when I heard netroots the nation, I listened to um, Kevin De Leon, who I think is an ex- excellent speaker and someone I thought, Jesus, kid's going to go somewhere, to um, Ocasio-Cortez and to um, Julian Castro. Mm-hmm. And their focus was what we need, what the Democrats can bring to the table that the Republicans are not doing. They talk it, but they don't do it. We need to, I want them to talk about the infrastructure that is not getting funding. How many, how many school buses in the U.S. have to plunge into the Ohio, the Missouri, the Mississippi, or the Columbia? Because the bridge was built in the fifties, like the one in in Italy. Yeah. And uh, we need to talk about, oh, <laughs> we need to talk about health care. We need, uh, we need, I'm am a I'm a retired critical care nurse. I know what happens when people don't have health care. I know that the consequences can be death. And it's not death of just senior citizens who are pinching like I am starting to with their medication. We are seeing young people who don't have it. We are seeing people who have no access, who said, well, you know, I can't go see a doctor. I don't have the money. I have these other debts I have to take care of. There's also, we need to talk about racism. It is hitting my family directly and personally. And racism is real. Institutional racism. We need to talk about a criminal justice system that is crazy. I'm tired of you know we give so much airtime to the wanker in the White House. Excuse, that is a swear word, so don't. But it's an English swear word that my mother was talking around <laughs> a few
2: times. And a bloody good one. I'm, yes,
0: it is a bloody good <laughs> one. And and toss her too. And then and I won't go further than that because it's going to get really nasty. But we need to talk about what we can do and one of the things that needs to be focused on is this tax bill that people think they got something good for it it's going as long as republicans are in office the middle class taxes will go up so if the middle class care about whether they're going to send their kids to college they need to realize that republicans are not going to help them yeah so i don't want them to talk about the increasing poverty in this country.
2: Sheila,
5: okay, I get it. I'm done. I have months
2: now. I, I absolutely get it. And you've got a, a good list of issues, and I agree. Democrats need to be running on the issues. That's mm-hmm. not the question, though. The question is, should we also talk about impeachment? I think that we're capable of chewing gum I, and walking at the same time.
0: Absolutely. And when the question comes up, then everyone who's running should say, yes, yes, I would vote for impeachment. Yes, this man needs to go. Yeah. And as far as Pence, we'll deal with Pence when he comes along. He may go with him. We don't know how much Pence
2: knew. I agree. Pence was in charge of the transition. I think it's entirely possible Absolutely. that you're going to find Pence is up to his eyeballs in this stuff. Sheila, thank you. Excellent perspective. I, I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you. Carolyn in Haim, Texas. Am I saying that right, Carolyn? Yes, you are. What's up?
6: Well, I actually disagree. I don't think that we should be discussing impeachment of Trump for two reasons. One, there is not one shred of evidence that has been presented to the American people of any Russian collusion whatsoever.
2: Trump has admitted to it. He admitted to it in a tweet last week. He said that they had a meeting with Russian lawyers and Russian officials in Trump Tower in order to discuss getting from Russia information about Hillary Clinton.
6: No, that's not what he said. That lawyer was not a Russian official. She had at one time worked for the Russian government as a prosecutor, but she was in private press.
2: Carolyn, the email that they got and you could read these. Donald Trump Jr. publicly put these things out. The email that they got said, "The Russian government would like to help you." Well,
6: I mean, Dan, Dan, that was the
2: email Dan from Algorov I think it was Algorov from, from the from the Russian oligarch who set the meeting up. He was like, "The Russian government would like to help you," and Donald Trump Jr. Dan. is like, "Cool, bring it on." An,
6: an oligarch is not a member of the Russian government. Well, well, how is
2: Donald President Trump Jr. to know, the Jr. To know that when the, when the when the guy represents himself as a representative oh. of the uh, Russian government?
6: So it's not against the law to go and meet with them. It's against the law to actually say, okay, we want, give me the evidence. But there was no evidence presented. It was about adoption. And so it
2: was... It was um, a, okay, so it wasn't about adoption. It was about the Magnitsky Act, which is you know, the, the Russians stopped American adoptions of Russian children in, right, in, in protest injured. of the fact that their oligarchs were being financially hurt by the Magnitsky Act. So that wasn't about That's, adoptions, that was about loosening up the sanctions the in exchange for helping Donald Trump become president. I don't see how that is not an impeachable crime.
6: There's no crime of talking to someone. Conspiracy
2: to defraud the United States is a crime.
6: There is no defraud. He didn't get any money from the government.
2: He got something of value. He got Hillary Clinton's emails.
6: You know, he did not.
2: He did he well. They mean, were the, the transported into gone. the public domain via WikiLeaks from the Russians to WikiLeaks to the public domain.
6: there is no, there is no evidence to prove
2: at the request of Donald Trump.
6: There is no evidence to prove that. I mean, just because he said it at
2: a time. Carolyn, he's confessed to it. And, uh, well, Carolyn, you you need to go back and read the email chain between Don Jr. and the guys who brought this information. It is so obvious. Carolyn, thank you for the call.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive.
2: Uh, Rocco in Rosendale, New York, listening to us on Progressive Voices. Hey, Rocco, what's up?
4: Well, you know, I don't think that impeachment goes far enough. Um, it appears Whoa. that the GOP has abandoned most of its core principles and become a racketeer-influenced corrupt organization. Um, so you're calling for a RICO
2: investigation is- and prosecution?
4: Yes. It, it I'm is- with that. I'm down
2: with that. I'm Yeah, absolutely. I agree.
4: Okay. You know, every day that goes by... They have a new crime against the American people that concentrates the wealth in the hands of oligarchs. The oligarchy pays them with donations that underpin their political careers. Without these donations, which are basically bribes, these predators would be out of a job. And then they go on and they dismantle every cabinet office that's been appointed by this president. It's It's absurd criminal on a massive scale. And it should be brought to the American people to understand that the entire GOP is guilty. Because if Trump knew, Pence knew, if Pence knew, McConnell knew. If McConnell knew, the Speaker of the House knew, and down and down and down the line.
2: I believe you're right, and and I am hopeful that the Mueller investigation, if this is true, I mean, if it's not true, I, I would like these guys to be exonerated. But if it is true, then we need to lay the evidence before the American people and the world. And then, you know, an appropriate action will be taken. But should we be talking about that kind of a, well, actually, you're making, you're making a strong case, not just for impeachment, for, but for actual prosecution. And I, but the oligarchy has been certified as acceptable by the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court arguably created modern American oligarchy in 1976 in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, when they said that it's illegal, that it's unconstitutional to pass laws that restrict campaign contributions. Well, that's got to be changed. Yeah, I think so. But it's not going to be changed now that you've got an illegitimate Trump presidency who is appointing two Supreme Court justices, that should have been appointed by a democratic president you had the illegitimate bush presidency who appointed two supreme court justices that should have been appointed by a democratic president hell ronald reagan support you know appointed two maybe three supreme court justices and and uh, you know he, he, yep. he stole an election it's like i yep. you know we've got a big problem with our supreme court here
4: it goes all the way back to reagan it goes all the way back to reagan
2: it seems like everything does Okay, thank you very much for the call uh, what a what a day huh we got some fantastic callers in all directions. Kenneth in Seattle, you want to get back to the discussion of impeachment uh, uh,
7: yes um, i here's my reason why we should discuss it um, and my answer to the usual objection. the usual objection is uh, Congress won't do anything because it's all republican um, and i I brought this up to a friendly acquaintance um, and and he was dismissive utterly dismissive and 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 the, the reason i brought it up is that is that uh, trump had just announced that he was canceling the treaty to iran as i understand it canceling a treaty is violating a treaty that's correct and a treaty a treaty as i understand it is second only to the constitution in being the law of the land, so that's already an impeachable. Effect.
2: Treaties are actually above the Constitution. If we above signed, a treaty, okay, well, if we signed a treaty, if we signed a treaty that okay. abrogated First Amendment free speech rights, that would become the law of the land.
7: Okay, I stand corrected. Okay, so it's impe- it's impeachable already, right there, along with all the other things. Now I mentioned this to a friend. He he was utter, utter, utterly dismissive. Um, Disdainful, dismissive.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, like, uh, no, no, nobody cares. Congress is not going to do anything. What he was overlooking and what other people overlooked is that we don't just have to be reactive to that fact. There's a matter of long term response, there's a matter of building momentum, there's a matter of shaming. Eventually, shaming the Republicans, bringing bring into it the the effect of worldwide opinion, showing the Republicans to be not very short of being a gangster operation, yeah. and it takes it takes time to do that. So yes, we should talk it. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll fail to actually bring it about, but there's this long term effect. There's no sense in throwing in the towel and giving up because, because of an immediate reaction. There's a matter of long-term response and we can help develop it. So yeah, yeah. yeah we should talk it up.
2: Amen. Okay, Kenneth, thank you. Your, your vote is recorded. Yeah, so we should, be, we should be prosecuting these guys rather than just impeaching Trump. So what are the crimes that we would prosecute them for? Look at what Scott Pruitt has done. Literally taking global warming off the website of the EPA when global warming represents an existential threat, not just to the United States, not just to our military power, not just to our economic power, not just to the health of our people, but to the survival of the human race. And we're going to take that up. This is, this is just, you know, it's outrageous. It's beyond the pale. Zach in Hollywood watching
8: us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Zach, what's on your mind today? Morning, Tom. Just an observation. We all know and we all saw all the way through 15 and 16. that The corporate media was wall-to-wall Trump. We know that. And they were selling. And the point I'm trying to make is that we really do live in a market structure. They're selling cars, hamburgers, and designer drugs all throughout 15 and 16. All along the way, all the anchors were making bank on that, and now they're making bank, trying to come down on the right side of history. Still selling cars, hamburgers, and designer drugs. If we just look at what's going on, I just would like to ask a question: What is the penalty for high treason? And has there ever been a conviction of high treason in this country? Yeah, Benedict Arnold, um, and and I, and I, the I'm quite sure there have been others for high treason
2: uh it it, it 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 runs a spectrum i mean at, at the high end it's it's death by firing squad but then you know thought. benedict arnold was banished from the country as i recall i'd have to go back and read the history it's been f- probably 50 years since i did so um he got he slipped out yeah and i guess the question is in what context i mean if you're the president of the united states the penalty for high treason is impeachment so something changed along the way no it's in the constitution
8: so that is the sentence
2: yeah the the idea was that the president is not subject at least on a on a cursory level to oversight by the courts uh, individually now you know we we know now that that's that is not an absolute right uh, we that was uh, Nixon v uh, US or US v Nixon I guess was the case and then we saw the same thing in Paula Jones versus Clinton those two cases the supreme court ruled that the president was not above the law so there is some law that can inflicted upon the president but but generally speaking at the founding of the Republican to this day the idea is that if the president commits high crimes and misdemeanors and by the way the Constitution specifically says that uh, in cases of impeachment and treason the president cannot use his his uh, his uh, pardon powers
8: but and they're breaking constitutional law
2: I I I agree but that's uh, you know given our current system that's up to the Supreme Court to decide but the bottom line is that the solution to a president committing treason, or at least the primary solution, the first solution, is impeachment. Get the guy out of office. And then you can go after him as a, public, as a private citizen. And I think a lot of us are looking at that going, yeah, that would be a good step. Let's get this guy out of office. Boy, it's going to be hard. I agree. I it's agree. Slippery. And These and,
8: guys are so slippery.
2: Well, it's not just that. They, the, the, the main reason why Donald Trump has not sagged as badly as he as he could have under all of this is Fox News Fox News is providing information to a significant portion of America
8: and those people I was a Bernie voter in the primary big time and then I went and voted for Hillary and we were up 13 points remember yeah yeah. 13 points and then the next morning everything dropped out yeah it's
2: uh, well you know unfortunately right now that's ancient history Zach but yeah I'm with you and, you know, the question, what do we do with Donald Trump, if it turns out that he has conspired to defraud the United States of a clean election by having a corrupted election, corrupted specifically in this case by the Russians, what do we do? I think we impeach him. Let's check in with Bob Ney at Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goatsfortheoldgoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book, uh... bob is on the line with us he's the author of sideswiped former republican congressman from ohio congressman welcome back
1: well thank you tom
2: great to have you with us bob so what's going on in the world today
1: have you talked yet about the lunch strategy with the two trump attorneys at the blt stake yet
2: i know nothing about this
1: oh you're gonna love this one okay As we know, and I want to make a disclosure here, Don McGahn, at one point in time, uh, did work for me with the uh, Republican uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, for me and others, and also gave us advice during the um, campaign finance reform debate as a lawyer. So I just wanted to Hmm. make sure I got that out there. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So so I know him. I've had dinner and lunch with him. Not in the last three years or four, but before. And uh, so the interest, uh, obviously, with the Don McGahn story is fascinating. Uh, and uh, we know now that he has spent 30 hours. When there's a lot of speculation with Mueller uh, being, you know, questioned, of course, by the Mueller investigation team. Now, the reason he's been sitting down with him because, by the way, Tom, he was completely opposed to opening up to Mueller in the beginning. Now, to, to McGann's credit, <clears throat> excuse me, he did threaten to resign if, in fact, Trump carried out the threat to go through Sessions to fire Mueller. So he did do that. But he did not believe in an open strategy. The two lawyers that are no longer in the service with Trump, Dowd, uh, you know, I think you know, uh, John Dowd and Ty Cobb, those two lawyers, they're no longer employed. Those two lawyers had lunch at the BLT Steak, which, of course, is a popular D.C. steakhouse. And that was in a report from September 2017. During that lunch, what ended up happening is. This was the quote from the lunch, because there was a reporter that happened to be sitting at the next table. Oh,
2: that's right. So I, I remember that. this
1: now. Yeah, Right. Well, here's the quote. The White House Counsel's Office is being very conservative with this stuff, said Cobb, as he told uh, Dowd. Our view is we're not hiding anything. Referring to Don McGahn, he said, quote, he's got a couple of documents locked in a safe. Then Cobb expressed concern about another White House lawyer and said, quote, I've got some reservations about one of them. I think he's a McGann spy. So of course, this got reported. So then Don McGahn and his lawyer, as we understand it, from what we found out, William Burke could not understand why uh, President Trump was so willing to allow Don McGahn to speak, because they said to Don McGahn, "You can go speak to Mueller." Right. So <clears throat> McGahn started to fear, <clears throat> according to reports in the White House, that he was being set up to take the fall. And of course, one would think that because if the president's lawyers are sitting there talking about you at the BLT Steakhouse, right. openly at a table, one would think you're going to take a fall. So, therefore, McGann has spoken. Now, is he going to the level of where you know he's exaggerating anything on the president? I highly doubt it. Yeah. Uh, would he be telling the truth? You know, we're not in the oh. room, so we we assume. The the only thing that is the follow up to this, though, Tom. Whatever McGann says, unless Mueller can act on it, then it's incumbent upon Trump at some point in time to be deposed as the president. Then you see what McGahn said, and then you see what Trump said. So, Bob, that leads... hmm?
2: So the conclusion of all this is what?
1: Well, so my my conclusion of this is that Trump will never never, under any circumstances, sit down with Mueller because they will they will look at whatever McGann said and they will ask Trump and again if he doesn't sit down with him then what happens to him? Unless yeah. here's he's here's
2: let, let me lay out my theory on this, uh, right. Bob, and I'd love you to reality check it. Sure. Uh, Donald Trump has a long history of lying to everybody in sight, including his own lawyers, and you see this in a number of depositions over the years that had to do with business matters, where his lawyers were blindsided when he finally got in and had to testify under oath and turned out and you know admitted that he had just openly lied even to his own lawyers about the issues. I'm thinking that Trump knew that. They were that his son and 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 other people in the campaign had reached out to Russian sources to try to get the dirt on Hillary. He did it himself in a speech, you know, famously, et cetera, et cetera. But he knew that there was collusion going on, and you know, a conspiracy. And he lied to his own lawyers that, that in the very early days, the White House lawyers, the ones who, who were employees of the White House as opposed to employees of Trump, they came to him and they said, okay, is this true? And he said, no, of course not. You know, I never, I never, we were, no collusion, you know, everything's good. And they were like, okay, well, we've got to come up with a strategy to deal with Bob Mueller. And Trump is like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. And so they're, so, so they're saying, okay, well, in that case, then we should just give him everything so that he'll figure out that you didn't do anything wrong. And that'll be the end of the investigation, right? And Trump is like, at that point, he's kind of backed into a corner by a own lie and he says oh yeah sure go ahead and do that and so don mcgahn goes out and says okay here's everything i've got and then as time passes you discover don mcgahn discovers that trump has been lying to his own lawyers and lying to don mcgahn and and you know would have been lying to Mueller. and at that point you know don mcgahn starts going whoa i've got some liability here because i repeated those lies to Mueller early on so i've got to go back and talk to him again and that now mcgahn is like you know whether Trump was setting him up to take the fall or not, he could see that he could take the fall, and so now Trump has been caught by his own lies. What do you think?
1: Well, I agree because Trump didn't set McGann up. What Trump did was set up Cobb and Dowd by telling him there was nothing to worry about, and then they indirectly set all this up, or so, you not? Know, Trump- right cause all of this
2: right yeah by by his by his being a pathological liar essentially believed him yeah there you go (laughs) any lawyer believes donald (laughs) trump deserves what they get bob nay thank you so much bob
1: okay thank you
2: you're listening to tom hartman You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X-Chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X-Chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially, improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And it's patented, split-back, lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe you need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com now, to check out the X3's Perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1 844 4XCHAIR. This chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Esther Forbes' book, Paul Revere and the World He Lived In. It was actually sent to me in 2010 by Alma Leslow, if I'm reading this right, and thank you for that. It's a remarkable book. You'll recall I've talked about how every time our country reboots, it goes through a major transformation. It's the result of, or it follows an economic crash every time we do a positive transformation. And, you know, we've talked about the crash of 1837, the crash of 1856, the crash of 1889, uh, the crash of 1929, all of which provoked very positive changes. I suppose you could argue the Civil War wasn't a positive change, but this is what provoked the Revolutionary War. Uh, This is from page 98 of Paul Revere and the world he lived in. January 15, 1765. The trade, Merchant Rowe noted, has been much alarmed this day. Mr. Wheelwright stopped payment and kept his room. A great number of people will suffer by him. Nat Wheelwright was the first of many merchants to collapse that spring. During the war, merchants had increased their stock and speculated. Farmers had enlarged their farm. Those boom years were over the depression was begun and in boston it lasted 20 years january nineteenth, 1765 very bad accounts dr john scola shut up dr john denny shut up and peter born of the north end by shut up they mean close their businesses am unlikely to be a large sufferer by scola now mr rowe is really apprehensive he is a cautious gentleman no longer young Even the walking was dangerous that day. Extreme, bad, and slippery. This is his diaries she's reading from. Next day was Sabbath. Mr. and Mrs. Rowe never missed services at Trinity, but did not go to church. My mind too much disturbed. Just as he should have been starting, his dear friend Joseph Scott had come up to see him very disturbed. Sure enough, next day, Mr. Scott had also shut down his business, and William Haskin and the company had been shut down as well. A bank failed for 170,000 British pounds. Mr. Savage fell in a fatal apocalyptic fit in his lawyer's office. Captain Forbes shut up his shop today, and much grieved for him, wrote one of the diaries. The merchants were going down like a house of playing cards. Each big house, such as Mr. Rowe mentions, carried innumerable small ones with it. Shipwrights, sailors, and sailmakers might suffer first, but tailors and peruke makers and our peruki makers, button molders, or soap boilers, silversmiths, or braziers all followed. Rents and mortgages could not be paid. The clergy began to find more copper and less silver in the Alms Basin. Farmers drove mutton to town, could get no decent price, and angrily drove them home again. Only one-fifth of the usual numbers of ships cleared that water from Boston for the West Indies. Not only was the artificial wartime prosperity over, but the merchants could not pay the duties now demanded of them. They experimented in short runs along the coast or kept their ships laid up as one after another shut down. The stagnation of trade gave everyone from Mr. Rowe and his fellow merchants like the young Mr. John Hancock, dining as elegantly as ever at the Royal Coffee House, to the meanest porter and the cheapest alehouse, a leisure to talk they had never enjoyed before. Boston went off into a talking jag that did not end until Lexington. That would be the shot heard around the world. Why was there no money to be made on the fine ships which for a hundred years had been bringing wealth to Boston? Why was there no work for a willing, able-bodied man? Who was to blame? England's efforts to enforce her navigation acts had upset long-established trade habits, but she had not as yet actually collected enough money over here to pay her customs officials. It seemed to have been the general opinion from the top of the social ladder to the bottom that England was to blame. The overexpansion in the last 40 years probably had as much to do with it as England, but it was the meddlesome tyrant from overseas that was the scapegoat. King George III was popular. Their enemy was Parliament. Grenville, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, looked about for some other form of taxation that could actually produce the money. Controlling smuggling over so long a coast 3,000 miles away was proving expensive, impractical, and extremely unpopular. After talking with the colonial agents in London and asking for alternative suggestions, he put the Stamp Act through Parliament. I am not, however, he said, set upon this tax. If the Americans dislike it and prefer any other method, I shall be content, provided the money must be raised. As soon as the Stamp Act went into effect, which it never did, every legal document, every newspaper or commercial paper would need a stamp, costing from a half penny to twenty shillings. It would require very few officers to enforce, and no breaking and entering of private property. As Grenville argued, it would fall fairly equally on all colonies and classes, but it was technically an internal tax, not an external like a customs duties, and its theory frightened the colonists. Whether or not England had the legal right to tax these colonies in any way she pleased does not seem to be settled yet. Probably she had, but it was the utmost folly to do so. This distinction—this is a quote—this distinction between internal and external taxes seems to be the inquirer today, as it did to so many in that day, almost a quibble one should be universally accepted through generations, and the other start men to their feet shouting liberty or death has never been satisfactorily explained. Tom Harbin here with you. So is it time to reclaim the word socialism? Or maybe just to claim it? Because even Franklin Roosevelt was accused of being a socialist back in the day by the Republicans, and he rejected that. He said, no, I'm not a socialist. I'm an American. And this is the American way, and this is the American tradition, and this is the American, you know, social security. We're, we're all in this together. It was the, the nurturing family model of how a country should be run as opposed to the, the severe father model. And we're all in this together. We care about each other. We care for each other. It's our job collectively to be here for each other. Increasingly, though, that word socialism, democratic socialism specifically, has been used now for the better part of 30, 40 years in in Northern European countries, certainly the Scandinavian countries, embrace it with enthusiasm. Yes. Uh, I mean, Louise and I, we did our show. We did this show for two weeks from Denmark back, geez, six, seven years ago, some long time ago. And... I had on, you know, a bunch of Danish politicians, Danish news reporters, Dan- you know, and, and everybody was like, yes, we're a democratic socialist country. Uh, we have social democracy, I think was the phrase that they used more often than not. And the idea was that and almost half of the entire GDP of Denmark is in the government sector right now. Because the government pays for all of your education, all the way up to an MD, and they pay you a couple hundred bucks a month to get that education in other words, to cover your room and board and your food and your books. They pay for your, uh, your medical services, and it's quite comprehensive and it's completely, you know, it's, it's totally comprehensive. They pay for, they subsidize housing, they subsidize employment, they, they subsidize employers with uh, you know long-term unemployment benefits and other things like that. Now, we subsidize employers here in the United States with food stamps and with uh, housing assistance to low-income people, but I think most Americans don't realize that that is a subsidy to low-wage employers, that people would not work at McDonald's and at Walmart and at 7-Eleven and at fill in the blank. They would not work those jobs if they did not have government support. If they couldn't get food stamps, if they couldn't get housing support, if they couldn't get, uh, you know, Medicaid, if they didn't qualify for cheap uh, or free medical assistance, if they couldn't get those things, they literally could not afford to take those jobs. So these payments that we're providing to working poor people are not subsidies to the working poor the way the Republican Party likes to characterize them. They're subsidies to the employers, because if those subsidies weren't there, the employers would be forced to offer higher wages because nobody would want to work for them. Because, I mean, why work for seven bucks an hour when you end up in the hole? So kind of wandered far afield from my original topic, which is, is it time to reclaim the word socialism from the dirty word category? Elizabeth Brunig, uh, writing about this over at CommonDreams.org, she says 57 percent of Democrats polled said they view socialism positively only 47% of Democrats view capitalism positively. That's down from 56%. Republicans, 71% love capitalism, and only 16% of Republicans think that socialism is a good thing. But here's the thing, and this this really troubles me. I've seen this twice over the weekend, both times on MSNBC, but maybe it's just because I watch that more than I watch CNN. In both cases, I heard commentators say that People like socialism more than capitalism, and therefore, quack, quack, quack. And the problem is that democratic socialism is not anti-capitalistic at all. Democratic socialism envisions a, a massive role for capitalism in our economy. Basically, the private sector is left as the private sector. All democratic socialism advocates is that the commons, the public sector, should be robust that it should be healthy, it should be strong, that, that your, your ability to get an education should be unquestioned. Your ability to get health care should be unquestioned. Your ability to uh, retire at the end of your work life and live a dignified life to old age and death should be unquestioned. That the right of people to, to have a successful pregnancy and give birth without fear of death. Keep in mind, the United States has the highest maternal death rate in the developed world. Our maternal death rate is as bad as it is in some of the really un- underdeveloped and undeveloped parts of Southern Asia and Africa and, and presumably parts of South America, although there's not a single country there that, that is as badly afflicted as in Asia and Africa. But this this is like, this is not anti-capitalist. Democratic socialism coexists with capitalism. And I the, the, just this breathtaking ignorance that I'm seeing on the part of uh, mainstream and corporate media commentators saying that capitalism is inconsistent with democratic socialism it just blows my mind and and I think that it further confuses things people watch TV and they go oh well you, you get to pick between socialism and capitalism well yeah if you want to use Marxist metrics but, uh, you know, this is not, we're not talking about Marxist socialism. He, Karl Marx used the word socialism. He should have used the word communism, and later on he did. But, but democratic socialism is not communism. Yes, communism is, stands in, in opposition to capitalism. And capitalism stands in opposition to communism. I get that, I agree with that. But when, when Democrats are talking about socialism, we are not talking about communism. We're talking about what we already have. America is already a socialist nation. We just do it badly. We have Social Security, but most people actually can't retire on it. We have Medicare and Medicaid, but it doesn't cover all your expenses. It doesn't even cover getting your teeth cleaned. We have uh, you know, a, a, uh, a long-term unemployment, but the Republicans cut it from... Two years down to one year, and then they cut it from one year down to six months. We have job retraining programs, but they're pretty ineffective. They've been largely privatized, and they're being run by scam for-profit colleges. And, and you know, Trump wants to put all that under Betsy DeVos' purview. So, yeah, we have socialism in the United States. We have food stamps, but, you know, $3 a day? Can you live on $3 a day? We just don't do it well. And the countries that do do it well have lower maternal death rates, have lower rates of mental illness, have lower rates of death from all kinds of diseases, including heart disease and cancer, have lower rates of suicide, have lower rates of homicide, have less corruption in their body politic. And, you know, we're at the bottom on all of those things, on all the metrics for all those things. And I would argue that the, and, and, and by the way, the countries that do it well have less inequality as well, and we know that as inequality rises, so does crime, so does suicide, so does mental illness, so does teenage pregnancy, so does uh, the rate of sexually transmitted diseases, so does drug addiction. All of these social ills have an almost one-to-one correlation between rising inequality and rising problems, and we have among the worst in the world. The UK and the United States are the worst, because we had Reagan and they had Thatcher, And and we both embraced neoliberalism with a gusto. And the consequence of that is, and you know, we used to solve this with high tax rates. That's how you, the the way that you challenge uh, unequal wealth distribution, wealth inequality. The way you challenge that is by raising taxes on very, very rich people and, and on high levels of income. It's real simple. It worked just fine. Before the Reagan tax cuts, the average CEO in America only made 20 times what his employees make. And it was usually his back then, too. Now, so you've got CEOs that are making over 300, over 400, over 500 times what, what their workers are making. That's just, that's absurd. You don't have to pay CEOs that much to do the job. American business wasn't crippled or kneecapped or dysfunctional before the Reagan tax cuts. And then the Bush tax cuts, and now the, now the Trump tax cuts. It's just straightforward stuff. If you wanna have a country where the, you know that works, that has any measure of democratic socialism, and we have a lot of it, then make it work properly. Fully fund the Veterans Administration, fully fund Social Security, fully fund Medicare and Medicaid, fully fund food stamps. Yeah, you might, you might have to raise taxes on rich people to make that happen. You might have to raise taxes on Wall Street to make that happen. That's a good thing. That reduces inequality and makes our society healthier. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So the question, is it time to reclaim the word socialism, or should we just go around it? Or is it time to reinvent the word socialism? Oh my! There's a bunch of stuff in the news here today that I just wanted to hop on here. Business looks to Kavanaugh to extend Supreme Court hot streak. This is this is something that should concern all of us. Uh, Alexandria Glorioso writing over at Politico, she says, you know, abortion rights and civil liberties have so far dominated the fight over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court because you know we we all know he's going to. Make uh, abortion illegal, or allow the states to make abortion illegal, and and civil liberties. You know, he's he's ruled against people on a number of occasions, and ruled in favor of things like torture and and the, the having the government crash into your house and and uh, you know threaten you and search you and all kinds of other stuff. But the uh, but the business part of it is being largely ignored. And Alexander writes, uh, industry groups led by the Chamber of Commerce have spent decades bringing lawsuits and filing briefs to the top court, the Supreme Court, in hopes of reining in regulatory power and winning favorable rulings for business. And court watchers believe Kavanaugh, who was recommended to Donald Trump by the Conservative Federalist Society and worked in the pro-Business Bush Bush administration, would help industry continue its hot streak at the court. And then they point out, this has been the most business-friendly court in the history, of the Supreme Court. So some pretty, pretty strange stuff there. George in Santee, California. Hey George, what's up?
1: Yeah, good morning, Tom. On the uh, subject of fake news, when I'm talking to my uh, Trump supporting friends, they like to say that what we call mainstream media or corporate media is liberal media.
9: Right.
1: And for me, that is an example of fake news that put out there knowing that it's a lie that our corporate media is not fake news but it's put out there to sway people's political and social opinions could you could you give me a a good simple definition of what fake news is
2: well fake news is lies
1: yes that's yeah and i think the idea that the mainstream media is liberal is a very good example of fake news
2: yeah I I don't disagree. First of all, facts have a liberal bias. The vast majority of Americans actually like the Social Security, Medicare. I I think fairly soon you're going to see the vast majority of Americans wanting Medicare for all. Certainly, the majority of Democrats do. Global warming is real. I mean, you know, I don't know when that became a liberal thing. I guess what I think is happening here, uh, what is happening here, George, is that the the definitions are being redefined. My dad's version of conservative was, yes, we want progressive change, we want to move forward, but we do so slowly and incrementally so as, so as not to destabilize society. You can't have too rapid a change or you'll get backlash and then society goes nuts. That was what conservatives believed. William F. Buckley said the, the modern-day conservative stands athwart the arc of history with his out, yelling, stop. That, that was it. But today's conservatives are not that at all. Today's conservatives are corporatists. They want to do whatever is in the interest of the very rich and the big corporations. Period. Full stop. And they're willing to use racism to get there. They're willing to use sexism to get there. They're willing to use misogyny to get there. They're willing to use pretty much any awful thing, these so-called conservatives, to get there. Pretty amazing. George, thanks for the call. I agree. Liberal media is uh, this show. But that's it. Albert in Los Angeles. Hey, Albert, what's up?
9: Hey Tom, thanks for taking my call. I just want to talk about democratic socialism, and and maybe give a better definition. Um, Basically, democratic socialism is just the democratization of resources. And when we talk about the economy, you know, we need to start talking about it instead of dollars and cents in in terms of resources. You do a good job explaining things, but for some reason, it doesn't seem to be sitting in with a lot of the listeners, especially what inelasticity is. And basically, and you you described that pretty well, but for some reason it's not sitting in. Any elasticity is simply saying anything that we need, regardless of the price, we should band together and try to come up with some type of economies of scale to take advantage of that because the average cost per person will go down. It's almost similar to what you were talking about with, with, with the profit motive. You know, things that we need should not have a profit motive in front of that because it's only going to drive up the cost. And if we want to lower the cost on something that we need, the obvious way to do it is to not have somebody, quote, unquote, capitalize off of
2: that. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And this, for example, I've, I've been seeing these century-look commercials on TV where they go, you know, you can get the same price for the rest of your life for your internet service. And I'm like, wait a minute, shouldn't internet service prices be going down? I mean, basically everything that's tech, the price goes down. Over time, you get economies of scale, you get, you know, improvements, uh, you know, better algorithms, better codecs, all this kind of stuff. The price should go down. Why would I want to lock in my price for life? So, uh, yeah, excellent point. Mark in San Francisco. Hey, Mark. Uh, 30 yeah, income seconds.
8: inequality, that's the big issue. And this tax cut, we can really point it out as welfare for the 1% corporations. It really is. Well, we went trillions of dollars in debt to give the well, uh, 1% corporations this uh, tax cut. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. Mark, thanks a lot for listening to AM910, our, our new affiliate in San Francisco, Clear Channel Station there. Great to have you with us. What a fascinating day. Uh, I haven't heard about the Manafort jury. In fact, apparently they're still deliberating. I'm wondering if there's a Trumpster on that jury who uh, has been watching Fox News and is going, this is just an attempt to take down Trump. That's what's going on here. I'm not gonna put up with it. And we're gonna end up with a hung jury. If so, you know Fox notches another uh, one in their belt. Amazing. Anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag, you're in.